Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog. Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger in chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQblog.com. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're going to look into the wide-eyed world of data visualization. To help us take this journey through the looking glass, I am pleased to be joined by a very special guest. Phil Simon is a recognized management and technology expert, a sought-after keynote speaker, and the author of six books, including the award-winning The Age of the Platform. While not writing and speaking, Simon advises organizations on strategy, technology, and data management. His contributions have been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Information Week, Inc. Magazine, The Huffington Post, Forbes, Fast Company, and many other mainstream media outlets. Phil Simon holds degrees from Carnegie Mellon and Cornell University. You can find them online at philsimon.com and on Twitter at philsimon. Phil Simon, welcome back to OCDQ Radio. Jim, how you doing, bud? I am doing fantastic. It is great to actually get a chance to talk to you. You are a very, very busy guy, as always, churning out the books. You have another new one for us to talk about today, The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, Big Data, and the Quest for Better Decisions. That sounds about right. I still have a hard time remembering the subtitle of that one. I find it interesting that a data visualization book has such a verbose title. <laughs> SEO purposes, but it would have been funny to go the Seth Godin route with We Are Weird and just have a picture on it. I'm not sure that the publisher would have been too keen on that. Yeah, it could have been like Prince to just be a symbol of some kind. <laughs> we can call you the data visualization author, previously known as Phil Simon. There you go. It might get me out of my contract. <laughs> well, since your book is about data visualization, we hear the term a lot, or I guess really hipsters like to say data viz. But before we get too far, what exactly is data visualization or how are you defining that in the book? I went, Jim, with a fairly prosaic definition of it, the visual display of data or data in a graphical form. As I researched the book, though, and started writing, it was obvious to me that the days of the static data viz weren't necessarily coming to an end, but those static data visualizations, particularly on small structured data, could only do so much. And as I did the research on companies like Netflix and and eBay and Autodesk and some others, the companies had created interactive tools, particularly with regard to big data, the, the large unstructured stuff, were really able to ask better questions and ultimately make better decisions. But that's not something that you just set and forget, hence the, in the subtitle, the word quest. That's also a little bit of a nod to Chevy Chase in one of my favorite scenes in National Lampoon's Vacation. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun, and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fun, we'll need plastic surgery to remove our files. <laughs> it's not so much to me a book about data visualization. I'm certainly not an expert on it when I think about people like Edward Tufte and Stephen Few and Nathan Yao and, and others. They know far more about it than I do. 
But those books, while very useful, I thought tended to focus on theory more than um, practice. And in this book, I worked really hard to find companies that would let me go on record and say, this is what they're doing and this is what they have found. And here are some actual examples. So hopefully it's more practice than theory, although there is a framework in the book that people either love or hate in which I debunk this notion of it being a binary. In other words, there are stages or levels. And a company like Wedgies that I profile, which I think does some cool things with relatively small amounts of data, it's only a six-person company, doesn't do as much as a company like Netflix, which has a market cap of, last time I checked, 21 or $22 billion. So I wanted people to think of it more as a continuum rather than just a destination that you arrive at and never leave. Definitely want to get to those levels. That was one part of the book I found very interesting. But before we get too far, there's another interesting distinction that you talk about in the book, which I think also comes up a lot. The difference between reporting analysis and data visualization. Because a lot of times people just think, well, I have an Excel pie chart. Does that mean I'm doing data visualization? You are. Like I mentioned in the book, I've been visualizing data since I started using Excel and even before then as a kid looking at statistics and trying to trade for baseball cards or playing fantasy sports or something like that. So yes, those absolutely are data visualizations. But to your point, that's presenting something that may not necessarily lend itself to other questions. And if so, where do you go for that? I recently blogged on my own site about a tool called Data Wrapper. And it's a very simple tool. You upload data and then you can embed it in your site. And I just did a sample for Ray Allen, who plays for the Miami Heat and his statistics over the last 15 or 17 years. Um, that's the type of thing on, on a very small scale that lets you ask questions and in theory answer them. Um, so there's no shortage of tools that go way, way, way beyond pie charts and, and static bar graphs and allow you to, to, to your point, move from basic reporting to more discovery and exploration. I can see how reporting and, and data visualization is different. What example of the middle ground of, of analysis in, in between reporting and, and data viz? You have a similar background to me. You've written many reports for companies and clients. And they said, hey, Jim, can you give me a report that tells me all of the users who've logged in in the last six months? And then those types of things, you are really addressing a specific question. With data exploration, I would argue at the other end of the spectrum, you're much less certain about what you're looking for. And when people talk about big data, some people say that intuition is dead. I argue quite the opposite. You have to pick a starting point. You have to pick a null hypothesis. You have to be willing to go to where the data takes you. As for a middle ground with analysis, unlike other books like The Age of the Platform, in which I define a platform very specifically, I didn't want to get too bogged down with terms. So yes, I do think that there are levels. It's not, to me, a matter of saying, all right, at this point, you're only doing reporting. At this point, you're only doing discovery, because I'm sure you could write a report that encourages people to discover. I'm less concerned about nailing those definitions and more about writing a book that embraces a mindset and shows how companies don't really know what they're going to find. As I write in the book, this era of big data does not mean that standard reports or dashboards or KPIs or traditional analytics goes away. But I think there's a reason companies like Gartner are talking about data exploration and data discovery. I would argue that those tools can't possibly address every conceivable scenario. You can't write a report that gets at every question. You, you'd write too many of them. We need tools that let us interact with the data. And if that leads to some kind of analysis, then that's great. But I don't segment the tools into three categories. Interactivity would be something that came to mind for me that would separate analysis from reporting and maybe flexibility in, in terms of being able to do something with it. One of the things that a lot of people use as an example of data visualization 
because you see them a lot more nowadays is infographics. Do you consider that data visualization? Sure. If you break down those very long infographics that you and I have seen, they absolutely take data and you'll see a bar chart or pie chart or chloroplast or heat map or all sorts of different things. Yes, they absolutely are. They are trying to tell a story, though, and get to a certain point. And what better way to do that than with a data visualization? As I discovered researching the book, we process data anywhere from, I think, it's 60 to 60,000 times faster in a visual form versus looking at raw data. It depends on the data. It depends on the brain. But I would argue those aren't necessarily data discovery tools. You may discover something looking at it, but it's almost what the person wanted you to discover. Or if there's a glaring omission, why did that person omit it? They're not interactive tools, and by definition, there's a, they can only be so useful. That's not to say that they can't be useful. Again, in the chapter, I think it's six, when I lay out this framework, I say that there is some theoretical limit to what you can discover on a static data viz off of small data. However, it could still be really valuable stuff. There is some abstract. If you take all sorts of unstructured data and put it into a very useful and interactive data viz, I would argue you can discover some things if it's well-designed and the culture embraces it that you wouldn't necessarily see even, the, even in the world's coolest static infographic. In the research that you did for the book, can you give us an example of one of the more interesting, real, flexible, interactive type of data visualization? Probably my favorite example, Jim, is the Autodesk tool org org chart. And anybody can Google it on, on YouTube and see, because in the book, I've got some static images. But again, even though they're very precise images, they don't do it justice. And an employee in Canada from Autodesk named Justin Majeka took four years worth of Autodesk employee data and graphed movement throughout the organization. And if you go to the YouTube video and look at the pictures in the book, it looks like something out of space. This was particularly interesting to me because before I started writing and speaking for a living, I spent a lot of time implementing ERP and CRM solutions. I spent many, many hours devising some very, I thought, cool HR reports that would pull data out of a system and present it. I am sufficiently humbled. I never created anything remotely this cool. You literally can see the impact of a reorg. Now, this doesn't tell you that turnover was 7.9% for the first quarter in the sales department. But when you see these things, you go, well, why is this happening? You can pause it. You can fast forward. You can zoom in. You can zoom out. To me, that's a very cool complementary tool, again, that may make more sense when utilized with something like a standard report or a dashboard or traditional KPIs. That, to me, was absolutely fascinating. And again, you can check that out online. Well, that's an excellent example of one of the things that really jumps out at me when you look at this book is all of the examples in the book are in full color. Really makes a lot of the different chapters really jump out at you. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we are discussing data visualization with Phil Simon, author of the book, The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, Big Data, and the Quest for Better Decisions. The title of your book is The Visual Organization. What do you mean by a visual organization? 
Put simply, Jim, it's an organization full of smart cookies who realize that things can be understood and explained and examined better in a visual format. These are very much organizations that reject what I call in the book the quarterly visualization mentality. In my experience, far too many companies suffer from it. Oh, it's the end of the quarter, the end of the year. We should visualize our data. It's sort of a project mentality. At a visual organization, they understand that you can't visualize everything. But Netflix is a great example. When I researched the book, discovered a three-part Netflix credo, one of which is that data should essentially be available throughout the organization. The second is the longer you take to use the data, the less valuable it becomes. I guess it has a half-life where it's like milk in your refrigerator. And the third thing is data in a visual form is inherently more valuable than data in a raw form. So that's my working definition. As you had alluded to earlier in the podcast, your book includes a four-level visual organization framework, and Netflix is an example of a level four visual organization. Can you explain what the framework represents? If you can imagine two axes, X and Y, and in the lower left-hand corner, you have a company like Wedgies that takes relatively small amounts of data and creates, to some extent, static data visualizations. They get some value out of that, absolutely. They're level one. Their goal is to essentially become, whether they know it or not, a level four organization in which as they grow and become a company more like Netflix, take larger amounts of data and create much more interactive tools, just like Netflix does. So I intentionally hold off on that because I didn't want to confuse people and hit them over the head with a framework. But after I go through the three case studies, Netflix, Wedgies, and the University of Texas, I said, okay, you know of three very different organizations, a $20 billion behemoth with 48 million customers, an educational institution, and a small startup here in Las Vegas. They're actually similar in some ways to the extent that they visualize data, but they are different in the type of data and the amount and the resources. That makes sense. And I apologize to you, Phil, and to our listeners. There is a little bit of a challenge here that we're trying to discuss a book about data visualization using an audio podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But the four-level visual organization framework has two axes to it. One is the type of data used, and the other is the type of data visualizations. So it's going from small to big in terms of the type of data used, and then from the type of data visualization, static to interactive. So a type one organization was someone that's dealing with a relatively small amount of data in a relatively static fashion. And then a type four organization is dealing with a relatively large amount of data in a very interactive fashion. Is that fair to describe it? It is. And I like to make the point that even though this would come across by looking at the figure very quickly, I intentionally had this blurred, their gradation. This isn't monopoly. You roll a seven and you pass go. It's very much vague on purpose. If you're not doing anything with big data, then I would argue you can't be a level four organization, but you don't really go from level one to level four. If you're not doing anything with big data, I don't see how you, over the course of a week or a month or even a year, all of a sudden become a company on par with Netflix. I try to make the point in the book that you progress through these levels, whether you know it or not. And if you are level one, maybe you should think about creating an interactive data viz like the University of Texas, I consider them level two. They're not doing as much with big data yet, but because they've already seen some of the benefits, some really interesting insights into the business that I cover in the book, because they've had success with very democratic, very open, very interactive tools with quote unquote small data, that I think makes them more likely to embrace big data. 
That definitely makes sense. The level two organization being one that's still dealing with small data, but is highly interactive, applied to a lot more organizations before the era of big data. But it is something that definitely, in my mind, separates data visualization from just reporting is, again, that interactive component. Well, I saw a great post soon after the book came out along the lines of data viz is the front end of big data. And I really like that. Most people are not going to be setting up instances of Hadoop and clusters and nodes and handling parallel processing and fault tolerance. Most people are business users. And to the extent that the data needs to be visualized for them to make heads or tails of it, they're not going to look at gigabytes or petabytes or exabytes of, of unstructured data like the matrix. I've seen this come up a couple of times, and sometimes people fall down this rabbit hole. At one point in the book, you say that data visualization should not be confused with art. And I've looked at a lot of really cool infographics that were static, and even some really cool interactive visualizations that looked really nice, but I wasn't sure, other than aesthetic value, what I was supposed to get out of it. Yeah, I agree. It is an issue, Jim. And in fact, uh, when I spoke at Autodesk, someone asked me a similar question. I think that gets to the importance of developing in a much more agile way versus the waterfall method that you and I've seen throughout our careers. If you only develop something that looks pretty, yet the business user can't make heads or tails of it, and that's a real problem. When I talked to Justin Majeka from Autodesk, I'd asked him about his process, and he said it was very much iterative. He very much went back with line users and said, this is my prototype, what do you think? And he would take the feedback and integrate it, sort of applying some of the lean startup methods espoused by Eric Ries in, in his book, The Lean Startup. So I, I do agree with you. If you create a tool that's too technical or too artsy or too slow or too insert adjective, that I think fails to get to the point of all this, right? You, you and I have talked before about how you can have a really cool tool, a reporting tool, data viz tool, whatever, but it's rife with bad data. Ideally, you have a tool that's useful and has good data, although perhaps paradoxically, I recommend one of the things inhibiting companies from becoming visual organizations is this concern about data quality. I would argue, and I'm certainly not the first person to do it, that one of the easiest ways to see if you've got a data quality issue is to visualize it. It won't manifest everything, but for example, if you see some outliers there, you might go, well, what's up with this? And being able to see it, I think, is a lot easier than looking at a spreadsheet. You make that point in the book of visualize not just good data, but bad data as well. And you're right. That is when you take a look at some outlier values is probably the best example in terms of being able to put that up graphically. And you can it just jumps right out at you that something is way outside of the normal distribution. And that could be a data quality issue or it could be an insight that you need to focus in on. But without being able to see it graphically, it's hard for you to conceptualize that there might be something wrong with the data or just something different about the data that needs to draw your attention to it. Right. It could be an outlier. It could be density. Why is there so much happening at this particular point? It could be really the lack of data. In my career, I've written reports and said, well, why aren't we seeing anything here? Let's say it's a particular hire date. Did we not hire anybody in December? Some cases, oh, yeah, that paperwork hasn't been processed yet or that system hasn't been updated. In which case, again, the absence of something may show that there's an issue. During Hurricane Sandy, people were using Twitter to determine the extent of power outages. And for a short period of time, people didn't think that there was much power being lost until they visualized the Twitter activity on a map of New York. And they found that most of it was coming from Manhattan. Interesting. And the reason for that is because the rest of New York didn't have electricity. (laughs) 
So all of the tweets that were saying, hey, everything's fine here, power is still working for me and we're not having any problems, were being tweeted out by the people who could tweet because they had electricity. <laughs> That's really interesting to note because um, from one of the posts on the, the SAS Data Roundtable for which we both blog, I wrote a piece about how there are 31 pieces of metadata on each tweet. It's an astonishing number to me given that you're hit with a max of 140 characters. I would bet you a Coke that one of those pieces of metadata is the device. So if I'm tweeting from my laptop and they know that through IP address, then I'm not tweeting over my iPhone, which I don't believe has an IP address. Another way they could also take a look at desktop versus mobile breakdown. If there's like a cell outage in a particular area, then there wouldn't be tweets tagged with devices that would be on a mobile phone or, or apps for a mobile phone. And then laying that on top of maps are not the only types of visualizations we can do, but heat maps on top of geography helps you see that type of distribution. The visualization of which may reveal, as you said, the absence of data as the key insight. Continuing on the theme of data quality, obviously my favorite topic. At one point in the book, when you were getting into some of the myths about data visualization, you make the point that just because data is visualized doesn't necessarily mean that it is accurate, complete, or indicative of the right course of action. There was a controversy recently about the middle class in the United States, and there was a data viz that showed that it was dropping. I personally, based on what I've read and, and seen, think that's true. But you can tweak the axes and make it look like the middle class is thriving. So it's, it's not hard to take your particular opinion or advance an agenda through data viz. You still have to think critically. It's, it goes back to conversations we've had before about Google. Yes, it can make us stupid to the extent that you can look something up. You don't have to memorize it, but you still have to, I would argue, whether it's Googling something or looking at a data viz or just interacting in, in this world in a professional way, you still have to question the source. But I agree with you. If, if it looks like something is dropping, that may cause you to think, since we process images so much quicker than visual format, that makes it true. A couple of weeks ago, there was a great pie chart in which you summed up all the percentages. It was something like 286%. And I'm pretty sure pie charts aren't supposed to sum to more than 100%. <laughs> that reminds me of a great joke from the television series Martin Family, when the character Phil Dumpy, played by the actor Ty Burrell, puts together a book of life lessons for his daughter, Haley, going away to college, which he calls Philosophy, a hardbound collection of all the life lessons I've learned, such as the most amazing things that can happen to a human being will happen to you if you just lower your expectations. But the one most germane to our discussion was the one read by the actor Ed O'Neill, who plays Phil's father-in-law, Jay Pritchett. Success is 1% inspiration, 98% perspiration, and 2% attention to detail. Philosophy. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio... 
We are discussing data visualization with Phil Simon, author of the book, The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, Big Data, and the Quest for Better Decisions. Phil, in the final segment of our conversation, I'd like to focus on the why are we doing this aspect. As you explain in your book, a visual organization is composed of intelligent people who recognize the power of data and routinely use contemporary, powerful, and interactive data viz tools to ask better questions and ultimately make better decisions. What is it do you think that makes an organization an a-visual organization? if you pardon the pun, an organization that is not adopting no data visualization in this way. You and I both know, to quote Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In some companies, I've certainly experienced and I know you have as well, people didn't want to look at data or data visualization or anything numerically oriented because they know why employees leave or why customers stay. And they don't want to listen to what the data may have to tell them. I still think that to me, this is a book fundamentally about a mindset as opposed to about a series of tools. Yeah, chapter two of the books covers design firms and open source tools like D3 and best of breed tools like Tableau and and enterprise solutions from Microsoft and SaaS and some of the other ones that have been around for a long time. But to me, it really is about having this mindset. And hopefully with the case studies in the book, I show that this isn't just about a company like Netflix. When I spoke at Netflix, true story, I uh, fumbled when I meant to say in front of a, probably about 100, 120 Netflix employees that Netflix was responsible for one-third of all U.S. nighttime internet traffic. I mistakenly said one-fifth. Within, oh, I don't know, two seconds, 25 people immediately said one-third. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Netflix doesn't need a chief data officer to stress the importance of data. Everybody at Netflix, including the receptionist who welcomed me, understood the importance of it you could see the tech Emmys in the lobby of Netflix headquarters in Los Gatos, or you can look at the data visualizations on the wall that are framed. They stress the importance of data there. So at a company like Netflix, they realize that data really matters. There are other companies that might have pockets or individual employees that understand it, but if it goes up to the senior levels, as I've seen firsthand, and people don't want to listen to data, you can buy all the tools you want. That's not going to save you. Yeah, I agree with your point that a visual organization recognizes the power of data. And not because they recognize it when they see it in the visualization, they visualize it because they know that it already has power. To me, Netflix really is the quintessential visual organization. They just get it. I've already had this feedback firsthand when I've spoken. Well, gosh, you know, we can't do what Netflix does. And I say that's true, but realize that Netflix couldn't do that in 1998 or 2003 either. So to me, it is really more of a marathon than a sprint. Towards the end of the book, you look ahead to what the future of data visualization might look like. So in closing, where do you think the data visualization space is going? First, I I think that we may see more three-dimensional modeling, maybe something holographic going back our Star Wars days. But that one company I profile called the Yazdi is really doing some interesting things. And there are other companies as well. But after the book came out, I saw that they purchased some Enron emails in a database for $10,000. And they created, again, this was retrospectively, so they knew what they were looking for. So take that with a grain of salt. But you were able to see this sort of twisty puzzle type thing. And it was color coded. And again, this, this is easier if you look at the book. But you see how there are some external emails with some sentiment analysis tools that show that the potential for fraud has really increased. 
well, what if they knew about that before a, I think, a 50 or $75 billion company that Fortune named as the most innovative corporation in America for something like eight straight years went bankrupt and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people lost their jobs and retirement savings. And now most companies have to deal, if they're publicly traded and of a certain size, with Sarbanes-Oxley. So I, I do think that we'll see different types of data visualization based on different types of data as the tools get better and better. So yeah, as I kind of end up the book and, and talk about where we're going, I think that there will be more visual organizations. Well, if you would like to learn more about data visualization and how your organization can become a visual organization, I recommend reading The Visual Organization, Data Visualization, Big Data, and the Quest for Better Decisions. We've had the good fortune today to be speaking with the book's author, Phil Simon. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today on OCDQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can find links to the blog post summaries of every episode, ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes and a non-iTunes RSS feed, and a link to listen to OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. And you will find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, and email. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio. And until next time, may the data quality be with you, always.